Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Joining me today is my friend Richard the Saint. Richard is a writer and a thinker, among other things. At least that's how I know him on the Internet. I also do know him in real life. But we'll just focus on the work he does on the Internet. He has written so far a six-part series called Flight 1745, And it is a rather grand theory that we are going to try to condense into one episode of my podcast. And we're just going to see how that goes. So hello, Richard. Chris, how are you? I'm great, man. It's great to see you. Are you ready? So one episode. So this will be a three-hour episode if we're going to condense everything. (laughs) Well, we'll just see how it goes. Maybe (laughs) there will be multiple episodes once you release more parts of the series. But- For the time being, let's hit that runway. And while we are taxiing, you can tell me what 1745 is. Sure. So, so really, the concept around 1745 is it's really meant to paint a larger picture around how the two entities, Trump and Q, have played roles kind of on parallel tracks. Mm-hmm. Track one is this concrete track of Trump and his strong kind of public persona and his kind of impossible to ignore or deny 
um, personality versus track two, which is more of an abstract track of Q, which is it really doesn't allow you easy access mm -hmm. or easy interpretation. Yes. And so let's pause right there because, you know, I think that everyone listening to this will be at least somewhat familiar with Donald Trump's outsized personality. But a lot of people are not very familiar with Q. Some of the people listening to this will be very steeped in Q posts and Q lore and mythology. Some people out there will have seen some posts and some people out there will think that everything Q is scary and crazy and dangerous and the root of some extremely toxic conspiracy theory that only stupid and crazy people fall under the spell of. <laughs> so, so let's address that right away. And, uh, you know, obviously I wrote at length about Q as an information phenomenon. I don't believe that it requires belief. I believe it's information among other information and we can analyze that information. We can learn about that information and see whether or not it maps onto a discernible reality and then you know, figure out whether or not it's useful, what meaning we can draw from it, and then how it might apply to our understanding of the world. So that's that's my take boiled down. Where are you with Q? Um, I would say it's very similar to that. I think it is an information operation. Mm -hmm. I think operation is the is the correct term, um, meant to serve several purposes. But again. To what I alluded to earlier, I think it is all around the Donald Trump sphere, which is quite large when you think about it. It's more than just a president, now former president, hopefully to be president. It's so much more than that. There are components to it that, you know, span all sorts of geopolitical aspects. So um, and I think it it plays into all of those. But. But kind of to that point, I wanted to kind of round out this whole 1745 concept because there's another component to 1745, which is this whole idea that the plan has to be self-contained, but still somewhat visible. Okay. And this this is what brought to my mind this idea of a flight. It's something you can see, but you don't necessarily know who's on the flight. Got it. So if right. I see a plane passing over the house, I know there's a plane. I know there are people on it, but I don't know the identities of any of these people just by noticing the plane. That's right. Okay. Yep. So, so in terms of Q, yeah, I think we're, we're, you and I are, are pretty similar in our thinking about what it is as a concept, as well as what it is functionally, how it's mm -hmm. serving um, a very, intense purpose. Can I ask you one more question about that first part, right? So you are saying that the, the Q operation is self-contained in some way. Now, does the, does your perspective on Q require that Q is what a certain segment of the population believes it to be, which is an information operation run by people around Donald Trump, maybe people in the military or military intelligence, 
veterans of the law enforcement community, data analysts, whoever it might be, does your theory require belief in that idea? Or could Q potentially be a kind of counter uh, psychological operation meant to uh, trick or pacify Trump supporters or would be Trump supporters? Because my interpretation of Q is that it actually doesn't matter who's running it and that at this point, the psychological operation, whether it's run from one side or the other, has had a real world effect that is useful regardless of what side initiated the operation. Yeah, I think ultimately the the, the word there, key word there is usefulness. The means by which it gets there mm-hmm. is open to interpretation. So I don't think it has to be to serve an information operation purpose for all people for all reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you know, some people live, breathe, and die Q. Right. I mean, everything is through the lens of Q. Right. You could make an argument that there's some danger involved in that, but then you've got the other side, which is Q is fake. Yes. Right. So I, I think um, it's it's probably pretty well centered in between those two. Okay. So you know. Q being fake or not fake, that that question to me kind of in some way makes no sense. I mean, the posts are clearly real. People do clearly follow them. I don't think that it is the only lens through which we should look at all this stuff. But I also do think it is equally dangerous not to have paid any attention to it and to be making assumptions about what it is and isn't. And that's what we see from the mainstream media, generally speaking. They have examined the community that's built up around those Q posts and taken a set of the most extreme claims and then made up the idea that these extreme claims compose some sort of coherent conspiracy theory that is subscribed to by everyone who follows Q or even the people who are interested in Q or took the time to examine it. I mean, the information and the issue itself is relevant. And so to avoid completely a relevant issue seems like an act of obvious ignorance as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And and to your point, it can't possibly be fake. Um, so let's say let's say it's some guy in his basement mm-hmm. just shooting out messages to try to get people to do things or think things. It's still serving that purpose. Right. It's doing that. It's accomplishing that. Right. And and you and I don't think you can actually <clears throat> now that I kind of rethink those two different opposite ends of the spectrum, I don't think you can reasonably call it fake. Right. right. It's just it 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 has whether it has taken on a life of its own or it is orchestrated, it is very real. Oh, it's very real, yeah. I mean, the impact that it's had, and you mentioned this a bit, but Q posts do reference all sorts of geopolitical issues. I mean, it is America centric for sure. All of those issues intersect American interests. And if Q was predominantly run in some other country, you can imagine the content of all of those posts being entirely different, but the effect worldwide being the same. 
And the fact remains that Q has spread worldwide and there are tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world who are either learning directly from Q posts and their research of Q posts or going down to a second or third or fourth or whatever level who are taking in information that was initiated, the spread of that information was initiated by people researching Q posts. So the effect of Q is undeniable and the reach of Q is undeniable, but who is actually doing the posting, who Q is, whether it's one person or many people, that is something that we don't know and for at least now cannot know. And so that itself is a matter of belief and that is part of why so many people have a problem with examining the information in the first place, which I understand to some degree. I mean, if you don't really think at all about the information environment we exist in, one of the first things that people often do is figure out the source of the information they're receiving, because the source of the information they're receiving gives them some idea about the validity or the trustworthiness of the information. Again, in this modern age, I would argue that we can never really be sure of that even once we know the source of the information. So that question becomes moot for me, but I'll stop talking and let you give your reaction. Yeah, I. if you think of this in terms of the Rachel Maddows and the Jim Acostas of the world, mm-hmm. we know what they're spewing out. What they're not seeing and even in doing an even cursory level of investigation of Q is that at an absolute minimum, Q is very well informed. Yeah. Right? So to not acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. even if you claim it to be a conspiracy theory, is just total ignorance. Well, yes, or intentional misdirection because they yeah. what what it seems like they want is to make the boogeyman so dangerous that people will refuse to look at the information themselves. Because if they looked at the information themselves within the first 10 or 20 posts, you'd see information uh you'd see it bringing up subjects that people don't have a whole lot of information about, like the American relationship with Saudi Arabia. What happened with the Las Vegas massacre? What the deal with Hillary Clinton and Uranium One is? These are questions that that the answers, these actually matter in terms of our politics, and people will just ignore this all completely. And the media has done a pretty uh, effective job of steering what we might call normies away from all of these stories in total by making the conspiracy theory as they have defined it too dangerous but again to your point the fact that tens if not hundreds of millions of people are now following some at different levels just goes to show that they cannot suppress what cannot be suppressed right, right. so so and we're seeing that the evidence of that with q because it's only gaining in momentum right i mean long after the mainstream media, even in their false belief, long after it should have been dead and gone, right? Because shouldn't yes. Q have died with Trump? Yeah. In their minds? Or died with the Q posts when they stopped yeah. in 2020, and now they're back. And uh, 
you know, we have little Q at Q on Truth Social. And who knows what those are? Is it the real Q? We don't know, right? Right. right. Um, okay, so with that said, let's go to the Q and Trump connection. And the media is actually freaking out about this right now because Trump has made various allusions to Q in the last 10 days. He accidentally retweeted a truth social post and then deleted that uh, retruth. I, sh- I said retweet. Um, and they freaked out about that. I think that was post 11. And then over the weekend, during the end of his rally speech in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, he played uh, sound and music from two different Q-related tracks And so they are freaking out about that even more now. But the connections between Q and Trump have been ongoing throughout this time. And I imagine some of those connections are relevant to 1745. Oh, for sure. And in terms of Trump, so the evolution, if you will, of Trump's acknowledgement of Q is definitely becoming more and more concrete, Mm -hmm. right? Um, if I remember correctly, I don't know how, even how long ago it was, maybe two and a half years ago when he acknowledged it from the podium, when they asked him, you know, whatever the question was, and he responded with, well, you know, th- they're not big into child trafficking. Q's not big into child trafficking. I don't see anything to object there. Right. So right. He, even then he was he was kind of tipping his hat, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, a little bit, but, um, and then Savannah yeah. Guthrie asked him about it when Joe Biden skipped the second debate because of COVID Joe Biden and Donald Trump did separate media interviews and Savannah Guthrie asked him about that and kept pressing him that he knows what it is. He knows what it is. And he kind of just, uh, you know, ducked his way out of that one as he hilariously often does. Um, but in terms of your initial question, yeah, there's definitely Q, um, references and there's definitely a connection throughout the series. Um, I wouldn't say it's not the mainstay of the series. It's, it's more, uh, the functional technological aspects, um, of what we're experiencing. But, uh, there's actually one of the, one of the issues is, is very, very Q centric uh which we'll talk about here in a little bit but uh had i had i decided to go down that road there's probably so much i could have put in there about uh the connections to q that that didn't make the final cut because i was uh just going a, a a different direction largely but even in trying to do that it's unavoidable so is the 17 in flight 1745 more of a wink and a nod to Q or is it an integral uh, integral part of the theory? Is Q an integral part? Uh, yes and yes. Because okay. I, it, it started as a nod mm-hmm. and didn't end as a nod. Okay. Right. It ended as something more, um, definitely something more than that. And, and, and just between... You and I, Chris, I, I d- kind of didn't want it to go there. Sure. Right? Because I'm not really a Q guy. Right. And when I say that, I don't mean I'm not a Q believer. I obviously am. 
I'm just not a cute guy in terms of rolling it into my research. Right. But they're, they're, you know, you reach the point where it's unavoidable and we see that play out in the series. Okay, cool. So let's get into it uh, a little bit now that we've got that out of the way. Um, so flight 1745, where do we begin? Well, let's begin at issue one. So, um, which was titled the final descent. So in, in issue one, um, the focus on that is more framing up the idea of, you know, what happened, right? The election was stolen. Um, how are we solutioning it? Are we even solutioning it? And if so, how are we doing that? So it kind of starts with the cyber symposium, okay. which, you know, I know there are different views on, on the cyber symposium. Um, there was a point <laughs> when I thought that the cyber symposium was complete misdirection. And then in interactions actually with you, um, I actually came to a different conclusion, even on the first iteration of the cyber symposium, um, just based on lack of knowledge of what actually took place there that actually wasn't on camera. Mm -hmm. Right. So the cyber symposium is pretty centric in, in issue one, but more from the perspective of that's not where we're going to get our big reveal. And then I move into 2000 mules because 2000 mules. When I first, when I wrote issue one or part one um, was big in the headlines, 2000 okay. mules, this 2000 mules, that the, you know, premiere of Dinesh's 2000 mules. And so, so it was definitely part of it, just not a huge um, uh, part of this issue. I get more into that in, in subsequent ones. Um, but th I think the key in Final Descent was what I thought was a huge reveal. It actually, in retrospect, could end up being one of the biggest reveals of the entire series, which was this whole idea that the U.S. Space Command was handed over <laughs> from U.S. Space Command to, of all groups, the Department of Commerce. Hmm. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, my gosh. Hmm. Because I knew the history that Donald Trump, which dates back 25 years, the history he has with um, with uh, with Wilbur. Um, oh my gosh, Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross. And so uh, and so that really caught my attention. And so I okay. started to investigate that more. So Donald Trump named Wilbur Ross the Secretary of Commerce. Tell us about their past relationship. So they have all sorts of business dealings. Uh, they went to court on multiple occasions. Uh, there were times when um, Wilbur Ross um, literally rescued Donald Trump financially in business dealings. So they have a large business dealing connection. Um, and you could argue if you're on the other side that there's a lot of corruption between Wilbur Ross and Donald Trump historically. I wouldn't w make that argument in, in doing the research. I would just say um, there were some businessmen in, in, in New York doing New York business. <laughs> so, um, but that translated into, you know, this kind of subordinate relationship between Trump and, and Wilbur Ross. Um, 
that, and you see it manifests itself out with him as over the Department of Commerce. And then as the series progresses, you see how they're integrally involved. Uh, so we get they, into like things like the census and things like that. Are they friends or adversaries? Oh, they're definitely friends. Oh, okay. a huge friend. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so as you move on through um, part one, Final Descent, I kind of get into the key players. I touch on those a little bit. I talk about Ezra. Um, I talk about um, Larry Ellison, which we obviously don't get to in, in earnest until uh, part six. Um, and then I frame up the Eisenhower building, which I thought was central to what actually took place on November 3rd. Uh, and in that issue, I talk about the Eisenhower building, and then I reveal in there that most people didn't know at the time that the Eisenhower building actually has a skiff. And the controversy was that Donald Trump at the last moment moved his team to a war room in the Eisenhower building inexplicably. And there was okay. a big pushback on that. So the Eisenhower Executive Office building is across the street from the White House. The Eisenhower Executive Office building is basically where they, the location from where they run Joe Biden's fake administration in terms of the public facing part of it. That is the, that is where the stage set is that he runs his little television White House from and hosts all of his internet meetings with foreign dignitaries and whatnot, because he hosts them at the White House surprisingly very little. Yeah. Yeah. So the Eisenhower, the Eisenhower building is, is definitely an interesting thing. And when, when we get into a few of the other um, parts of this, I detail more out about what actually happened at the Eisenhower building that most people don't know in terms of its upgrade. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to talk about part two, which is can I ask you one more question about sure. part one first, right? Yeah. You okay. you you made note of the fact that the uh that the space program was moved over to the Department of Commerce. And I might be misstating your claim. Um, but can you just say a little bit more about that and what makes that so significant apart from Wilbur Ross being the Secretary of Commerce? Or yeah, is that so the it, only significant part? No, 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 no. So in in um in 2018, um, the White House issued uh, Space Policy Directive Number Three, which assigns the Department of Commerce the responsibility of public, publicly releasable portions of the DoD catalog and for providing basic space traffic management data and services, either directly or, and this is the key part, and I'm reading this verbatim through a partnership with industry or academia, meaning they now take over um, this portion of uh, the, the Space Force or the Space Command, meaning they now oversee all the traffic. So the reason that that is key is, first of all, it, it doesn't make any sense that they would take it over. And second of all, it explicitly states that they are now garnering partnerships with both academia and industry. Industry meaning technology companies that are not necessarily in the public sector. And you would expect that that stuff would just remain housed at DOD. You would expect. Okay. Yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, yep. so continue. Yep. So in part two, which is called Muleology, and I called it that in reference to 2000 Mules, 
the key around muleology is all about the votes and specifically about the popular vote. So when Donald Trump won, he did some things that were really odd, I thought, even at the time, which was he won, he obviously won the election, which was historic. And people to this day st still can't believe it even happened. But it's like it wasn't good enough for him. And so he started putting out communications that, yeah, Hillary won by 2.9 million. She won the popular vote. But if you take away all of the illegal votes, I won the popular vote as well. Well, at the time, I'm thinking, well, that's an unforced error. Why are you doing that? You won the election, right? Be a, be a, you know, a noble winner and move on. Um, and in that issue, I actually, I started off with, Hillary's concession speech, which if you look back on that, was actually pretty good considering in her mind um, who just won the election over her. And so, but then Donald Trump turns right around and starts playing his games in terms of, I would have won the popular vote too uh, if you'd have counted all the correct votes. So, so, but the key there, and I, and I note this in the issue, which is we can't think of Donald Trump as a domino thinker. He's not a linear thinker. He may give that persona off, but, and I'm going to read this straight from the article because I think reading it is best. So it says, this idea of domino thinking is faulty in my opinion. Trump has never struck me as someone that thinks and acts that way, but rather someone that thinks in terms of a single event, i.e. we caught them all, linear thinking is a dead end street. It's better to take two events you may be thinking of as having a cause and effect relationship as rather two parts of the same event. They go with each other, but the relationship is not causal, it's mutual. And so Donald Trump has done that. He throughout his presidency, he's doing it now. And that's why it's almost impossible to predict what he will do next because he doesn't think in a linear fashion. Okay. So let's rewind for a second. And then I want to get back to this idea. You know, one of the things that really struck me about election night in 2016 is that the media had called the race for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was expected to come out and give some sort of concession speech. And this is what we've been conditioned to throughout our lives. The media will declare one candidate or the other the winner. We will hear news of a call to concede and the winner will give a speech and the loser will give a concession speech. Rather than Hillary Clinton coming out that night, John Podesta came out on the stage and he said that they would not be making a statement and that everyone should go home and we'll have more tomorrow. And it was the next day that Hillary Clinton actually came out and made her speech. Now, I don't think too many of us understood that too well at the time. I guess there was some thought that night that maybe there was more counting to be done. Maybe the media was implying that maybe something would change overnight and this new nightmare world we were entering would be thwarted by the time we all woke up. And in retrospect, that looks pretty clearly to be a situation where the Clinton team was trying to figure out if there was any way 
they could make the election fraud apparatus serve its purpose and make Hillary Clinton the winner. And I don't know how else that delay in conceding could possibly be viewed with what we know now. So if you want to comment on that, go ahead or I can well, move to the next point. Well, it's possible that that was. It's possible there was a simpler explanation, which was Hillary was beside herself at that point, not mm. capable of coming out on a stage, which there was rumors of that. She was like throwing stuff or whatever. But um, <laughs> but I could but I could see uh, I could see that. But I could also see the fact that I could see her not being able to come out that night. I mean, uh, uh, and, and them just rolling out Podesta, which was, I agree, very weird. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. That okay. So, all right. So then let's get back to the, uh, the idea of, uh, linear thinking ver versus understanding, uh, two things as part of the same event rather than one causing the other. So what we're talking about is more of a, uh, a multi-directional sort of relationship between events. One doesn't lead to the other. They both influence one another in a way. And so, so what is an example of that? Like, what are you thinking when you pose an idea like that? Well, let's, let's, let's stay on that train of thought as to what was actually transpiring during that time period. So on one hand, you've got Trump saying, I would have won if we'd, if we'd counted all the legal votes. Um, on the other hand, you've got, um, Hillary, you know, somewhat graciously conceding, but, but in terms of this nonlinear thinking, in a parallel activity, this as the, is also the point when you now have the first appearance of one Greg Phillips mm -hmm. going on the networks, goes on CNN. He went on MSC, MSNBC one time. He went on CNN again, coming out saying, you know, we've got the goods on illegal votes. And it just so happened that the number of votes that he claimed he had that were illegal votes matched the number of votes that Hillary won the popular vote by. Right. right. So, so let me ask you this, how long after that election was it that Greg Phillips began appearing on, uh, different media shows? Was it right after? Or oh yes. Yeah, it the, was. Okay. Oh, it was like a week. It was like November 18th or something like that. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. So but what was also odd about that, and again, this is an example of nonlinear thinking. Greg Phillips was absolutely refusing to provide the evidence. Mm -hmm. We have the evidence. You know, he'd tell Chris Cuomo, I have the evidence. Just because you don't have the evidence doesn't mean I don't have the evidence. Right. So so you've got Trump saying I would have won the popular vote. You got Greg Phillips going on these shows saying I've got three million votes, illegal votes, but I'm not going to show you the evidence for that. Right. Um, so I think those are those are very important aspects to understanding how Trump operates and mm -hmm. um, that he is using people like Greg Phillips even back then, because if you remember, um, the big reveal there was you get the Greg Phillips tweet, but the only reason he even sent that tweet out is, is based on his interactions that he was having with Donald Trump. And so then Trump what, sends a tweet. What tweets are you, are you referring to? So, so in, in the issue from the, let me actually pull it up. Um, 
Okay, here we go. So in, let me get the exact dates. November 11th, 2016, Greg Phillips tweet that reads, complete analysis of database of 180 million voter registrations, number of non-citizen votes exceeds 3 million. Consulting um, legal team. Um, that was on the 16th. And then a the few days, or on the 11th of, of November, 2016. And so, and then a few days later, you've got Donald Trump retweeting that, which I actually, I don't think I have in the issue, but, and then referencing it publicly. So, and then when he's pressed on it in the interview with Chris Cuomo, um, Greg concedes that, yeah, I think he probably did, um, you know, make his claim about illegal votes based on my tweet. Mm -hmm. So that's the first connection between Greg Phillips and Donald Trump directly, dating all the way back to literally like a week after the election in 2016. Okay, and at the time, these could have seemed like totally discrete events. Donald Trump is a wild egomaniac who is self-obsessed and hates any appearance of uh, weakness or loss. And so it's not good enough for him to win the electoral college vote. He has to win the popular vote as well. And even if he didn't do it, he's going to say he did it because that's just who he is. And he lies about everything. Right. Yeah. That's okay. right. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the, the central focus for. Um, for that part, part number two. Um, but then I also dovetailing back into what we were talking about earlier, um, give more detail about the Eisenhower building. And it's actually based on. So Patel did Patel Patriot did a dig on the Eisenhower building um, about an electrical overhaul that they were having in the building and blah, blah, blah. And it was a pretty standard upgrade to meet, you know, office building uh, requirements. But then I got information from a guy that was following me saying, hey, listen, you and I both work in the same industry. We've been working in technology for many, many years. And you and I both know that the details of that Eisenhower electrical upgrade are way, way, way beyond what they needed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so here's what he said. He said, and I'm quoting, Patel's dig into the Eisenhower building looks like RFPs, which stands for request for proposal. I have proposed on on work or worked on. It's got to be a tier four full redundant with 2.5 megawatt generators, probably two full A and B power systems, raised floors, all screens, large data center feeding multiple skips, not an office building. So the dig that Patel did, the outline and the specs of that dig didn't match an electrical upgrade. Right. Yeah, and this so, is a yeah. substantial repurposing of this space. That's right. That's okay. exactly right. So, And so, can you say a little bit more, um, just for people who might not have spent too much time on this, what the purpose of a SCIF is and what sort of stuff you would need there from a technological aspect? Yeah, so a SCIF is specifically designed, so uh, for the average reader or listener, um, a SCIF is something you would observe or execute uh, the killing of bin Laden out of. Mm -hmm. 
The, and SCIF is Sensitive Compartmented uh, Information Facility. That's right. Okay. So a SCIF is designed to be completely secure, uh, redundancy all throughout it, multiple firewalls. You could never, you could never get in there either electronically or physically, no matter what. That's it's just not going to happen. It's got cutting edge technology interlaced all throughout it. So and it is extraordinarily expensive to build a SCIF. So, for example, they have a skiff at Mar-a-Lago, mm -hmm. right? So that's what a skiff's purpose is. It is designed to um, oversee and execute either large military operations mm -hmm. or very, very tactical operations that are meant to serve um, powerful purposes. So that's that's the purpose of a of a skiff. Okay, let's yep. go. Yeah. So so that is. Part two. Part three is when we called Maids of Honor. And the reason I call it Maids of Honor, uh, which actually I'll get to in a second, but this is all about the Greg Phillips true the vote technological vantage point. So at this point, we're heavy into 2000 mules. Most people have seen it. Um, it's getting huge popularity. And then Greg's kind of making the rounds. So he does he he does an interview with Patel Patriot on the 28th of May, and that's when we all heard the 10x bigger than mules reveal that Greg said on that show, which kind of, you know, both tickled our fancy as well as made us anticipate, you know, what was going to happen uh, six weeks from that date, and everybody was holding to it. And then, and then you move forward three days later, and he's saying basically the same thing at a hearing in Arizona, where he mm -hmm. says, I don't know if everybody heard, but I was just on a uh, um, a podcast where I said, you know, there's going to be a 10x bigger than mules reveal, reveal, and I'm just here to confirm that, which struck me as odd. I was like, okay, he's really, really pumping this 10x bigger than mules thing. Well, in that hearing, he also brought up the MADE technology, which stands for Mobile Advertising ID, which is a technology they use. They use like the MADE technology to hone in on uh, people at January or at January 6th. Um, they use the May technology as part of tracking down these mules in the 2000 Mules uh, documentary. Um, and it's basically a mobile application technology that you use to um, not only track people, but get um, what's called, um, I forget the specific name of it that Greg calls it, but it's basically tracking their day-to-day -day activities uh, in life. So you can kind of predict where they may be going next based on where they've gone before. The pattern of life is that pattern of life or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 Yep. And so, and so this is where we start to get into some Q stuff. And I did not anticipate this at all when I was writing this, had no intention of even referencing Q in this, in this issue. Cause this was all, all about the technology. Well, when Greg started referencing the fact that they bought data, um, in order to assemble this database, um, in order to be able to track these mules, I started researching, and since then Greg's confirmed it, but um, I started researching these, these companies that provide these services where you can actually go and purchase data um, and download it and keep it copies of it and, and use it for whatever kind of big data or analytical reasons you want to. Well, one of the company's names was Bridge. It's like the biggest company 
for providing these types of services. And so all of a sudden, I started seeing Bridge everywhere. So you, you've got Bridge is the name of the company. They had association with a company called uh, Bridging uh, Divides Initiative, who had an association with a company called the Bridge Alliance. And I'm like, okay, what's up with all the Bridge stuff? And then in, in digging deep into that, I noticed that of the, I don't remember how many it was, like 13 um, companies that this Bridge company works with, one of them was Oracle. Which kind of which kind of struck me. It's not completely out of the realm of possibility because a lot of people use Oracle's cloud, but that also struck me. But this bridge thing was really freaking me out. I'm like, okay, what's going on with this bridge stuff? So something just told me to text my friend Mermaid Miss K, whom you may know as well, but um, she she is my Q my Q knowledge, and so I was like, "It's hey, good to have one of those." It is good to have one. Of yeah, those. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> and so I said, "Hey, so listen, Kristen, can you um can you give me some information about Q posts that reference the word bridge?" And oh my gosh, she came back with a trove of all sorts of things, many of which were directly related to uh, data collection. And I was like, oh my gosh, and just bridge here, bridge there, bridge everywhere. And so at this point I was like, oh, well this has to go in the issue. It has to go in the issue, it's too obvious. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I put that in the issue and, and, and that was really, that really resonated with a lot of people. The, the fact that this connection with what True the Vote was doing, the fact that they're purchasing data from, from the Bridge Corporation and then bridges just interlaced all throughout. Uh, Q post. So that's kind of the um, the history behind that. But then in this issue, we move into kind of the census question, which was, for those who don't remember, Trump was trying to include the um, uh, the question of are you a resident, are you a citizen of the United States in the census, and they just shot him down left and right. They just weren't going to allow it. And so finally, he decided to issue Executive Order 13880, where he and the Department of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, were going to go it alone. They were going to collect their own data if the courts weren't willing to allow them to include it in the census question. So the reason this is key is because I think this is the database that everybody has been looking for in terms of how do we know who voted illegally? Are we talking about the census database here? We're not talking about the census database. Okay. That that doesn't include the question of right. You know, are and you and they uh, and they did go through the court process throughout 2020 on this. Right. 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 And uh, and so Trump said we're going to go this alone. And I'm going to find out who's here illegally and who here's here. Legally, and he did that using using the Department of Commerce with 13880, and they produced a report uh, which was actually just ever so slightly more accurate in terms of even the non-citizen stuff in in the report more more accurate than the census itself. So I thought that was very key. We haven't heard anything more about that report and that database that was produced Department of Commerce. Um, and I don't even know where it's at. I have some ideas of where it's at. Um, but I have an inkling that that is our data source in determining specifically who's who's here illegally. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question because for me, the entire issue of election fraud depends on the millions and millions and millions of additional voter registries that remain on voter rolls in all of the states, more or less. There may be some with clean rolls, but I don't think so. Um, And so to be able to have all those voter registries, you actually have to have an even deeper record of all those people. You know, you've got the set of voters who voted, Bigger than that, you have the set of voters who are registered. And then bigger than that, you would have all of the people on the census. Now, if you begin manipulating the that at the census level, then you're able to provide more fodder for those other levels and thus increase the available pool of potential fraudulent voters. And I think as more of this process gets revealed, we're going to find it out that that's exactly what has occurred. Yeah. And and the reason that there are multiple connections here, not just the Q connection and not just the uh, Department of uh, or um, uh, Department of Commerce connection with the them creating their own database with 13 uh, executive order 13880. Another critical connection here is when Greg Phillips said that they were using a supercomputer in Starkville, Mississippi. Mm hmm. To do their analysis, that supercomputer was a Department of Commerce supercomputer. Oh. Department of Commerce, who knew? Yeah. So so that's um, part four. Or part three. Part four is where we kind of go off the reservation a little bit, and this is kind of by design. It's called Layover in Babylon. This is all about the connections between Trump. Saudi Arabia and the culture. Um, so essentially, this starts off with, you know, I'm talking about two Saudi spies that were busted in Twitter at the time. You remember, Twitter's huge in the news, um, you know, where Elon's trying to buy it and so on and so forth. So I thought this was important information because what was also in the news at the time is Biden was making a trip to Saudi Arabia that everybody was basically making fun of. You're going to go over there and, you know, and kiss their ring, and you're going to get absolutely nothing in return, which, mm-hmm. as as it turns out, is precisely what happened. So yeah. you got the whole Twitter thing where they're busting these these Saudi spies inside of Twitter. Um, but what I also thought was critical, which Q comes into this as well, and I didn't know this, is that, and I may have this wrong, but I think Saudi Arabia in a Q post is plus plus plus. That is something I don't know. Yeah, so I think that's what I've been told by Kristen and multiple other people that that's Saudi Arabia. And so it's littered all all throughout QPost. You've got plus, plus, plus references all, all over the place. But what was important in this issue is that Trump inexplicably, because no, no president's ever done this before, his first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia. And, and what happened while he was there? Yeah, I mean, they were rolling out the red carpet. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, give me the um, rundown. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, a lot of people don't remember that. You know, you got to remember that a lot of the people that we are in communication with now are where I was back then and not paying too much attention to this stuff. Like, I saw him touching a strange orb in the Middle East in the mainstream media and thought, this is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. 
you know, I was like, what is he doing? This is a ridiculous picture. What is this? But it turns out that those events actually do have meaning if you try to seek that meaning out. And once you've discerned that meaning, that meaning, you can actually understand what's going on a whole lot better if you pay attention to strange events that you don't understand. Yeah, Turns out did, everything does actually mean something. Yeah, and he did the dance and you know everything with the swords, and they actually crowned him honorary honorary king. I mean, it was a very significant trip, right? And so they did not do that with Joe Biden. Mohammed bin Salman gave him a fist bump and then told him good luck finding oil elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, they were definitely rolling out the red carpet for for him on that trip. They were certainly. And, and again, the reason for that, again, goes back to Trump's business background. I mean, that's not the only reason, but we can't forget that a key player and people won't really understand this until they look at it in retrospect in this whole game has been Rex Tillerson who Trump brought on mm -hmm. as his secretary of state. Nobody could understand it at the time. Why in the world are you bringing on the former CEO of Exxon as your secretary of state? He's got no political background, right? He's, you know, and so now we know why. I kind of knew why at the time. I mean, he was trying to solidify those business relationships uh, and bring those into the, into the government space. Um, and one of those relationships, I mean, multiple relationships, Russia with Rosneft and Saudi Arabia. I mean, these were key relationships that were established by Rex Tillerson himself. And then Trump, like he did with multiple other people in his administration, when he decided that it, his Rex Tillerson's time was up, he fired him. Yeah. Right. But and that was all by design, I'm sure, between Rex and Trump. I'll, I'll fortify your relationships with these big oil countries and then I'll go. Yeah. It's like he needs you in the role to complete a specific task. And once you've completed that task or failed to complete that task, that's it. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And then and then there's the dark component of this with the Saudis, which is, you know, the whole Jamal Khashoggi. Um, murder and then mm -hmm. based on you know the washington post article that he produced on 9 11 back in 2018 where he's basically calling out saudi arabia calling out Mohammed bin salman um specifically in an article on 9 11 uh for human rights violations and then it, se it seems to me in retrospect that the media attempt to solidify the jamal khashoggi story was in large part to toxify the relationship between Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman. Is that how you read that or yep. yeah. my way off base? Okay. No, no, no. I totally get that. Yep. I'm, I'm with that too. Okay. Um, but I think the big, the big reveal in this issue was Chris Miller and Trump basically pulling a fast one on, on the Biden administration in terms of the troop pullout within Afghanistan. Okay. So it was, it yeah, was, you got to lay that one out for me. Yep. Yeah. So, so what happened there is Trump initially said we're going to be out of there by May, and then he turns around and says, "No, we're going to be out of there by Christmas." May didn't happen obviously, because he was going to have him out of there earlier than that, which was Christmas. Christmas didn't happen either 
But what was odd in this article is that Trump made that promise on October 7th. He made the Christmas promise on October 7th, which was before Chris Miller even arrived. Right. And before the election, you're talking about October 7th, 2020. Right. Right. And so it was initially a promise to get the troops home by Christmas, pull out of Afghanistan and bring everybody home by Christmas. And then that promise was revised to May of 2021 under the assumption of a second Trump term. That was the original timeline that Joe Biden then blew through. Right. 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 But but what was interesting about that and. There's a very interesting article inside of, of my issue where Chris Miller basically just comes out and says, if this was a ruse, those were his exact words. We never had any intention of pulling out troops. At all? Or, at just, all. By dis- or just by Christmas? No, at all. We were going to leave at least 800 to 850 troops there, no matter what. Like even beyond that pullout date, they were down to what, 24, 2,500? Right. Okay. Yep. And they had a, some sort of, I don't, I don't know if you'd officially call it a ceasefire, but there was basically an understanding that American troops would not be attacked. And if any were, there would be consequences. But as long as things remained stable, they would keep to the deadline of pulling out. Yeah. So they had the agreement with the Taliban. Um, Chris Miller says that was all a ruse. Trump makes the promise on October 7th that you guys all be out of there by Christmas. And none of that happened. Now we know why it didn't happen, because they never intended for it to happen. So why is that a rub? The rub is the agreement, according to the Biden administration, is Trump told us that they'd be out by May. And now here we are left holding the bag. So we're just taking them out of there. Mm -hmm. So. The theme there is that Trump and Miller kind of led them to a hasty decision to pull out very, very quickly because Trump had promised them. That they and by promised out. them, you mean the Taliban? Trump, Trump had promised the Taliban, but he had also basically promised whoever the next administration would be, either his administration or a new one, that we would start a new term with a fresh start. Yeah, right. And and essentially it was a, a promise to the American people as well. We're in this two decade long war, which is basically just a, a money pit and a pit of corruption, the opium trade, the military industrial complex, everything about that Afghanistan situation was bad from the perspective of the American people. We were told that we were protecting Afghanistan women and like feminist dance classes in Afghanistan. And that's what made it worth keeping our troops over there and sending trillions of dollars in that direction. Yeah. But yeah. And what was interesting about that is I still can't put my arms around. Okay, so so let's say Miller and Trump did kind of set you up. You still made that decision to pull out. Mm -hmm. and. It was arguably the most disastrous military decision in multiple decades Mm -hmm. in terms of its success or lack thereof. So, I mean, certainly optically. Yeah, it was. And then the 
Yeah. And then, you know, the real effect of that, I guess, would be uh, a matter of which perspective you might be viewing that through. You know, the Biden administration in their ineptness has tried to reframe the pullout from Afghanistan as an incredible humanitarian effort that not only ended the war there, but allowed us to retrieve an unbelievable number of our friends and partners and allies from that region and reposition them on the global stage. And that was uh, more than enough to warrant all uh, whatever was viewed as a disaster. Yeah, that's right. And so then part four moves into kind of the cultural aspects of the connection between Trump, golf, and the Saudis. Um, and so for the audience who may not be familiar, um, the Live Golf Tournament has now, golf organization has now spun up as a competitor to the PGA Golf Tour. This was exclusively spun up by Saudi Arabia in using a very, very popular uh, now retired golfer in, in uh, Greg Norman, who is really, really close friends with Trump, um, to compete with the PGA Tour. So what we've seen in now in professional sports, which is the first ever, is that an, another country is pulling away American athletes from a professional sport. And, and it's all because of the connections that Trump has with the Saudis. So that's more of a cultural kind of a side note in, in part four uh, that I think is interesting from the perspective of Trump is not just playing a political game here. He's playing a cultural game on multiple fronts. And sports, specifically golf, which we all know he loves, is one of those fronts. Yeah, that's particularly interesting. Um, I mean, obviously not necessarily in a political perspective, but uh, the idea that there is a direct competitor now to the PGA and that it sprung up virtually from nothing in a very short period of time um, you know, you have Rory, Rory McElroy. I think just this week I saw a headline where he was talking about players who had joined the Live Tour shouldn't be allowed to participate in PGA events. And it's really weird to see one of the players doing that. You know, nothing stopping Rory McElroy from participating in both of those tours, conceivably. Um, Golf is one of those sports that it doesn't actually require the formation of teams. You don't need to sign away individual players or sign away entire teams. You can just sign away the players one by one. It's an individual sport. There are golf courses all around the world. The PGA does not have a monopoly on those. In fact, the PGA eliminated Donald Trump related courses from their tour as a result of cultural pressure. And maybe that's you know, grassroots, but almost definitely not. It's probably some top-down influence because the same people are influencing corporations and organizations all around the world to disassociate with Donald Trump in many arenas. Yeah, yeah, and so, and Donald Trump got kicked out of multiple courses. I mean, they yeah. moved Doral to Mexico and, and the Doral had been there for years and then they just up and moved it to Mexico. And it all goes back to, you know, he was really getting the heat for um, his, you know, connection to January 6th. And so a lot of these golf courses were just kind of crumpling under the pressure. Um, 
So or using you know, it as an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. Something along those lines. So, so I, I never give them the, uh, the benefit of the doubt on any of it because they don't <laughs> deserve it. It's obvious what's going on. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. So then in part five, which is called hook, line and sinker, we move more back into the geopolitical, um, aspects of this specifically, um, as it relates to COVID, uh, and vaccinations. Um, but also, uh, kind of the branding approach that Trump has had uh, throughout the years, which is just proof positive that he is a planner at heart. Um, I think one of the key things in this, from that perspective, is a lot of people don't realize that the MAGA trademark, he trademarked MAGA, the term, six days after Mitt Romney lost to Obama. Really? Yeah. Six days. And then, um, True Social, and I can't demonstrably confirm this, but what I can confirm is that True Social, the domain, was started, the website domain, was started and registered in 2011. And then a year later, MAGA was trademarked in 2012. Um, And so that kind of gives you some perspective, at least on the MAGA front that Donald Trump has been planning this movement and this presidency for many, many years prior to 2015. I think that this is one of the things that um, people who don't study any of this stuff with any seriousness and aren't particularly sophisticated about what might be happening behind the scenes when it concerns Donald Trump, I think this is one of the hardest things for them to grasp is that there actually is a long game here. Because they are presented continuously with the idea that Donald Trump is not rational and that he's not patient. He doesn't have the capacity for planning and execution. He's just kind of the guy that's like the, uh, you know, the huckster playing the, the, the card game on a New York street corner. And he's trying to trick whoever comes along and just play to his own advantage all the time. He's just going with whatever feels right to him and he's going to win through uh, power or the force of his personality or the threat of uh, litigation or just overpower people with money. And it turns out that that is not actually true at all. There is a uh, there is a a system behind all of this. You don't just set out to create something called Truth Social in 2011 to have it then come to life in 2022 after you randomly became president as a product of cultural circumstances and a backlash to media coverage of Hillary Clinton and something to do with racism and sexism and homophobia. You don't um, trademark the name Make America Great Again six days after Mitt Romney loses an election that definitely wasn't influenced by election fraud at all, even Hmm. though Donald Trump was saying it was back in 2012, right? All of these things are viewed by the American news consumer as discrete events. And as you were saying, these 
are so discreet that there's not even a causal relationship between them. The only causal connection between them is Donald Trump and he's crazy and he's always after his own best interest. How do all these things happen if they are not part of a much more well thought out and orchestrated plan? Yeah, well, and not to mention, um, on the surface level, he's actually planning all the time. I mean, it is amazing. I have a buddy who just happens to be a member um, at Mar-a-Lago. And he says every single night, Donald Trump controls all the music in the ballroom, in, in, the, in the main eating area, and he sits with an iPad at a table while he's eating and talking with people, and he's the one who controls all the music. He, he, he's just that way. And there's a, and your audience may be, uh, this, this is more entertainment than anything. If you go search YouTube or Rumble for a video, I think you just search for uh, Donald Trump one-minute water drinking video. And it shows Donald Trump getting ready to go live on some sort of – Ah, yes, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, where he is in excruciatingly you know, fine detail moving a glass of water on a, on a table – uh, to make sure the shot is framed up so it is perfectly shot in a way that uh, it is best received by the viewers of that particular video. It just shows you the kind of mind he has in terms of that level of detail that is completely polar opposite of this kind of aloof doofus that he's painted to be. Right. And, you know, I worked in Hollywood nightlife for many years, and I worked with some incredible designers, people that were exceptional at curating certain kinds of crowds, people that knew how to book and place bands. And, you know, I was obviously involved with all of those aspects. And when we used to tour brand new nightclubs before they would open, when we're deciding whether or not we might work there and what nights will be there and how the nights will run and what kind of music will be played, we're looking into all those aspects through the eyes of a number of different potential consumers, which for us are potential guests, and that's very much like the experience Donald Trump is creating at Mar-a-Lago. But you really do have to do that. You have to think about how people are going to interact with the space, how things are going to look from certain different directions. And Hollywood set designers obviously do this all the time. They want to know where everything sits in the shot. They want to know how the light is going to hit the glass, where the person is going to be sitting and how that might affect the light. There are all sorts of aspects that make up uh, a picture that you are then satisfied with. And, you know, if you are that type of curator, then you have to ultimately rely on your own personal taste and your eye for what looks right. And so, you know, I watch that video and I see Donald Trump doing all of that stuff. He knows how this is going to look. He has in mind a, a certain visual aesthetic that he wants to be able to relay to whoever is going to see this. And you can actually turn the sound off and just look at the image and see whether or not it's better or worse as he manipulates that visual field. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the, um, it's an incredible level of attention to detail. Yeah, it is. It is. It's kind of crazy how he is that way. But, uh, um, when you really think about it, so the, so that's kind of the foundation for kind of kicking off 
part five. And then that leads into kind of heavier topics, which is, you know, COVID and vaccination. So, so what ends up happening um, as he continues to use this skill stack, and, and I'll quote uh, Scott Adams here, he's, you know, creator of Dilbert, extraordinarily accomplished, whether, regardless of how you feel about him politically. I feel terribly about him. Yes. Yeah, so, so he says, I've got a background in hypnosis and I've studied persuasion for decades as part of my job. And I see in him, talking about Donald Trump, more persuasion power than I've ever seen in one human being. So, you know, take that for what it is, but for somebody who's accomplished like that, to see that skill stack in a current president means he knows how to operate in the environment that Scott Adams operates in. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, we move on to the whole COVID aspect of this issue. And Trump uses this, this skill set for messaging to basically, and again, I think of this from the perspective of, and I think your audience needs to understand this, I write these issues from the perspective of Donald Trump already knows he will not be president for a second term in 2020. Mm-hmm. He yeah, already okay. So let's stick with let's let's flesh that out a little bit. So this is another one of those theories that, um, you know, whether you call them normies or whatever, people who don't pay that much attention, even many Trump voters. um, This is something that they that they bristle at. This doesn't seem possible that he could do all the campaigning, go through the campaign, act the way he has. None of this could ever make sense unless you understand Donald Trump as someone who wants to win at all costs and would never be able to step away, uh, would never be able to even consider the idea that he might take an L on purpose. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that mindset. But again, if you research the man and you look at the situation he was in, so let's use this as an example, COVID. So it is April, May timeframe of 2020. We are, we are deep in the depths of COVID at this point, right? It is like made its way to, to our shores and the death count is rising regardless of how you feel about that. It's rising every day. The infection count's rising every day. And Donald Trump is thinking about, you know, and then you've got the whole mail-in ballots. So he's mm-hmm. screaming, they're going to try to use COVID to steal the election. They're going to use mail-in ballots. So at this point, he's thinking, and I outlined this in this issue. And again, this might be part of that bristle that some people will feel. He's thinking, I can't, I can't win if I win, right? If I take on a second term now, they are going to do everything conceivable to destroy my presidency with COVID, which. I can't think of anything other than that's true. Yeah, that's exactly what they would have done. Even without even without the very deadly pandemic, they were able to undermine his presidency throughout the first term. You know, it went immediately from claims about Russian collusion and the steel dossier and all of that right into the election that he miraculously wins. They begin to undermine his presidential transition. And then they launch the Mueller probe, which takes a very long time. 
every single day in the media. The focus is on Donald Trump and Russia rather than what Donald Trump is doing. There's Stormy Daniels and Michael Avenatti. There is one scandal after the next, just totally manufactured by the media. And then once Mueller comes out and gives his report, there's no collusion found. And we are getting closer and closer to the 2020 election cycle. 2019 is one of the best and most powerful economies we have had in American history. American life is improving by leaps and bounds across every possible measure, except for the way people feel about the political situation. And by the end of 2019, they have created a fake transcript of a call with the comedic actor in Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Donald Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, is investigating Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's corruption in Ukraine. All of that, we are told, is meant to undermine the potential campaign of a potential presidential candidate on the Democratic side. And by the end of 2019, we are approaching the first impeachment, Donald Trump is then impeached for investigating what Joe Biden and Hunter Biden are doing in Ukraine. The impeachment fails and COVID immediately begins. That's right. And so Trump begins the campaign to make COVID go away. Yeah. The, the verbal campaign. And he is just a master at this because, I mean, and I put in the issue, there's 37 different instances just in that one issue where I outline where he shows COVID's leaving, COVID's going away, COVID's gone. It's all but gone. So he's trying to make it disappear from the minds of the people mm-hmm. in preparation for either a Trump second term, which I don't think he had an intention of doing until 2024, or for a Biden presidency um, where if COVID is still around, then Biden is strapped with it. Even because, wait, your predecessor just said it was going away. Wait, it's still here, right? So either way, Trump wins by making COVID go away. So, so that was the COVID part of it. But the big part of this issue is the whole vax thing, which is what everybody is still perplexed by. Why did mm-hmm. Trump why did Trump promote the vax? Why did we have, you know, Operation Warp Speed? What was the purpose there? What was he doing? How could he possibly promote this? Well, the obvious answer is an answer you would have for anything. If you are the one who said we're going to spin up Operation Warp Speed, then you better be the one who promotes its product, mm-hmm. right? It would be idiotic to do otherwise. You don't say we're going to spin up vaccines and then say don't take them, mm-hmm. right? That's not going to happen. So Trump didn't do that, right? He promoted the vaccines, <clears throat> but why did he promote the vaccines? And so that's where the hidden, you know, the hot mic moment that John Roberts, not John Roberts, the Supreme Court Justice, but John Roberts from Fox News had uh, with Doug Mills, who is a close friend of the president and a photographer who's been doing photography at the White House for many, many years. So in this hot mic moment, you have Doug Mills and John Roberts walking into a room 
And and I'll just the press read briefing it. room in the White House, the press briefing room. So a right. lot of people may not remember this hot mic moment. But in this hot mic moment, Roberts is talking about the case fatality rate and how the numbers have been skewed. Um, and and Doug Mills is like, oh, really? Um, well, that's reassuring. And then Doug Mills either purposefully or accidentally says the following line, which is, well, that's OK. Everybody here has been vaccinated anyway. Okay, this is April of 2020 that he makes this statement. The first vaccination. That hot mic was that early? Yes. April of 2020. Okay. Yeah. I that part I just missed completely. I remember that moment. I thought that was later. And every time I've read that, I've just been under the assumption that it was later. But yeah, of course. Of course you're right. That doesn't even make sense. Yeah, so so one of those things it, that just like didn't fit just right in my mind till right now. Yeah, so in this exchange in and kind of priority order, the intent around this hot mic moment in my mind when I read through this and I listen to it is it has three layers to it. It has the case fatality rate, which is what everybody was talking about at the time, what they were going to talk about in that particular press briefing. And they talk about this whole comment that Doug Mills makes, which was, oh, so it was a hoax. And then that's when John Roberts says, no, it wasn't a hoax. But what what didn't get the headline was what Doug Mills also said, which was, oh, it doesn't matter here because everybody here's already been vaccinated. And I don't care how many times you watch that hot mic moment and watch that video. He's serious when he's saying that he's not mm-hmm. saying that in jest. So we have to answer the question. What was happening in between April of 2020 and December 17th of 2020 when the first vaccine came out? And so in my mind, this should be very encouraging to people because whatever was happening was a good thing. And I don't even I have speculated as to what could be happening, but that would just be uh, kind of a nonsensical conversation. But um, something was happening during that period that had to do with vaccines that were already in existence. Mm hmm. And so what do you take that to mean then? I take that to mean either the military. So so one thing, so what Doug said in this hot mic moment was everybody here talking about everybody in, in that White press House. room yep. has been vaccinated anyway, which tells me they were vaccinating the people that they know needed to be vaccinated before they ever released, in quotes, the real vaccine itself. And then that's when you get into speculation. Who else was getting a vaccine and not even knowing it? And in what form? Was it even a needle vaccine, right? Were we being inoculated and we didn't even know it? Mm-hmm. So, so I think Trump had a plan, even on the vaccine front, that was in execution way, way, way before December of 2020. Yeah, that is that's one of those things that um yeah, I mean, I don't really have a strong opinion about that. People used to talk about um and speculate about what they believed the quote unquote Trump vaccine was. You know, like that there might have been something else and then what the the definition of the COVID vaccine or the Trump vaccine shifted at some point. Yeah. Yeah, well, in the public of- understanding, I mean, 
Yeah, and if you think about it, if you if you dovetail this into the narrative of Trump saying COVID's going away, COVID's gone, it's all but gone, and then all of a sudden you've got this situation where it would certainly appear that vaccines existed before vaccines existed. <laughs> uh, um, to me, that's a that's a telling sign that something was going on to our benefit. Well, okay. Because mm. wait, let me finish one more. Point. Sure, sure, go ahead. Because it was imperative that this take place and the first vaccine be released before Joe Biden took office. Right. Okay. And the way that it ended up happening was that the pharma companies delayed their announcement of the vaccine rollout until after the election, but it began rolling out before Joe Biden became fake president. Now, from the mind of a normie, they would hear this segment of our conversation and they would say, first, why would you believe that this Mills guy has some sort of inside information about this? This conversation was, it looks very casual. They were just having it kind of off the cuff as they were preparing for a press briefing. Maybe Mills didn't have any special knowledge. Maybe he said the wrong thing. Maybe he was making some joke about something else. Maybe he doesn't really believe that COVID is any issue in the first place. And I could make arguments that all of those things are plausible. Um, certainly the thing about COVID not being an issue in the first place, right? You could argue that they simply swapped out the flu. Maybe there is some, you know, different effect occurring here. But I'm one of the people that thinks COVID deaths are basically medical malpractice or data malpractice in whole. I don't know that it's possible to prove that someone died specifically of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. So if that's the case, if that's in this guy Mills's mind, maybe he's referring to something else here entirely, particularly with the timing. But I'll stop and let you react to that. Well, I think the preponderance of evidence in a one minute clip where mm -hmm. we have we just happen to have literally a one minute clip, nothing before it, nothing after it. And within that one minute, we're hearing about the doctoring of the case fatality rates. Mm -hmm. Is COVID a hoax? No, it's not mm -hmm. a hoax. And oh, we're all vaccinated all within one minute. Right. So to think that that's an accident and somebody happened to just leave the mic on for that exact one minute where all the critical topics mm -hmm. that needed to come out came out in that one minute. That kind of strains credibility to think that that was happenstance. Well, at the same time, you know, these are claims that were available in public, certainly the case fatality rate which I believe he's actually talking about the infection fatality rate um, that was out there. I mean, Marty McCary or not Marty McCary. Um, his name is, I believe, Anisha Adalja was on the Sam Harris podcast on March 11th, 2020, talking about that same uh, fatality rate. People knew from the very beginning, what was it called? The diamond princess uh, right. cruise at yeah. the beginning of COVID. People knew that the uh, fatality rate from the coronavirus was exceedingly low and uh, even just, you know, knowledge by inference, we knew that the first death from the coronavirus in the United States 
occurred and they initially said it was the end of January of 2021. Then it was the middle, then it was the beginning of January. Then it was sometime between the middle and end of December, 2020. And we knew that it was an incubation period and a time to death of potentially two to three weeks or more. And so you immediately know already that the coronavirus must have been in the United States by the middle to the beginning of November, 2019. And at that point, you know automatically that it was three and a half to four and a half months that the coronavirus was in the United States before we even noticed it happening. We had uh, concerts and sporting events. All of this stuff went on as normal throughout the entire winter of 2019 and 2020 before anyone was concerned with the coronavirus. So if that's the case, then COVID was either far less infectious than we were told or far less deadly or both. And Nonetheless, we were still told that the very deadly pandemic was very deadly and very scary and that we all had to change our lives completely starting in the middle of March of 2020. Now, none of that makes any sense, but we did know certainly that the infection fatality rate was very, very low at the time they would have been having this conversation. It doesn't require any special knowledge to know that part. The one key here, you know, the hoax conversation was certainly ongoing at that point. So the one key for me about is about whether or not anyone was actually vaccinated and what the content of that claim really points to in the mind of this Mills guy. Yeah, and it may point to, we may never know what it points to, right? Because the proof's only going to be in the pudding. So unfortunately, we're going to have to see if this stands the test of time in terms right. of, of uh, what actually transpires and if there's any kind of real connection back to that or to your point, was it just a slip up and he didn't really mean to say that. Right. Yeah. But whatever it was, there is um, some very interesting um, and unexplainable conversation happening about being vaccinated against the coronavirus within the first two months that most people in the United States were aware that the coronavirus even existed. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, good. So, all right. So let's move on to part six. So this, oh, go ahead. Well, it's also just interesting too, that, um, you know, Roberts initiates this conversation talking about how Doug Mills can take off the mask, right? John (laughs) Roberts of Fox news knew this early that masks were absolutely pointless and Mills is the one who then returns with, yeah, I guess you're right. Everyone here has been vaccinated anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and to your point, yeah, the fact that he says he's saying that and he's wearing a mask is I think maybe not a ton more, but slight more proof that that was a serious comment Mm -hmm. from a man who's, protecting himself in a room where nobody else is. Yeah. Or maybe they're just both making fun of how ridiculous the whole situation is, but back to warp speed in particular, what is your understanding of what operation warp speed was? Is that only an effort to bring vaccines to market to end the coronavirus? And why was it so important to get any vaccine to market that quickly knew it knowing about um the the really shortened timeline compared to normal vaccines 
Yeah, I'm not really sure where I'm, on, I'm at on that. I will say, so to your last point there, it doesn't make any practical sense that you can get real vaccines to market within that time frame. I don't care right. who you are when you've got everybody and your brother. Um, now, albeit, you know, it's Fauci and Burks and that whole gang. But when you've got everybody telling you you can't even get anything to market before 18 months and you're doing it in whatever it was, Nine. eight Nine. Yeah. And um, they're not only telling Donald Trump that they're telling the public that they are steering the public uh, against the idea that Donald Trump could ever possibly get a vaccine out that early. Yeah. Well, that's still what happened. But then from Donald Trump's perspective, he also knows the history of normal vaccines and that you cannot possibly get one out this quickly, not to mention properly testing it you know, for efficacy and for safety. Yeah. But again, to your point, does Donald Trump, has he ever struck any of us as somebody who would knowingly put something to market that could physically harm human beings? No, not knowingly. And that's only from our perspective, right? But, but again, from the, op but, from, yeah, from but again, the opposite perspective, go ahead. Yeah. But, but again, I know not knowingly, but I mean, even to, when we well, let me finish. Let, let me let you finish what you were saying. I, I want to hear what you, the rest of after not knowingly was going to well, be. Well, you know, from the opposite perspective, Donald Trump is a moron who brags about everything and forces his will on situations to the extent that he can. Right. So there are people that voted for Donald Trump and still have um, some inkling or suspicion that Donald Trump is at heart still that man, but is also better than any potential Democrat or other communist that might uh, rise up in his absence. And so from that perspective, Donald Trump was either ignorant or could have been fooled in bringing the vaccine to market. Yeah. So if I if I'm in Donald Trump's shoes and I've got Fauci on one hand, and Burke's on that same hand. And on the other hand, I've got Alex Azar, mm -hmm. who's telling me, Alex Azar, who, you know, a former executive at Eli Lilly, is telling me we can get vaccines to market in a much faster time frame than what everybody else is telling you, even though history doesn't support that. I'm Donald Trump saying that's a bunch of bull. We can't mm -hmm. get... We can't get vaccines to market that quickly. Um, so don't come telling me that. So the fact that he agreed to it tells me either one of two things. He's either knowingly harming people, which I discount offhand immediately, or he has another plan to get things to market as quickly as possible because he knows that his enemies, again, back to my original theme, once he's out of office, is going to slow walk the vaccines to the point where it devastates an entire society worldwide. Yes, and I am 100% of that mind. And I mean, I, I don't even think of this as a conversation anymore. I think of this as a... When people are mad at Donald Trump about what they say is his promotion of the vaccine and that there is some death count 
at Donald Trump's hands. I think that this is an incredibly stupid argument made by people who have not thought this through at all. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so he is, uh, so now we're on to part six, um, in the presence of my enemies. So this is the one where I had told people, uh, this will be the last issue. And this is the one where I try to put as much analytical power as I possibly can into what happened on election day. Okay. So, and this is election day, November 3rd, 2020. That's right. You know what, so, uh, Richard, I, I want to mention, and I, I don't know if you're planning to get into this in part six, but we haven't talked much about Larry Ellison and Oracle to this point. This entire issue is about Larry Ellison. Cool. Right, so, um, <clears throat> oh, which by the way, to our, to our previous topic, Larry Ellison, if you remember correctly, is the one who came to the table and got into the hydroxychloroquine discussion and agreed um, pro bono to offer his company as a service for collecting as much data as they possibly can about uh, the medication route of that. So, so I wrote about how many were in the vac vaccinator camp and others were in the medicator camp and Ellison and Trump were clearly in the medicator camp. Um, and that got snubbed immediately. You saw what they did to hydroxychloroquine. So, yeah, um, there's absolutely no reason for a vaccine for an illness with a fatality rate this low. Right. It just does not make sense, particularly when we know that the vast, vast majority of the deaths are in people of advanced age with significant comorbidities. It doesn't really affect children at all. It barely affects people of um, good physical health up until about the age of 60, 65, but really 70 and 75 plus with an average of four comorbidities. The idea that a vaccine was necessary for this illness at all is insane except from the perspective that if we don't get the vaccine out, then there is a certain portion of the population that will not believe, no matter how much you prod them, that it is safe to return to normal life. They are right. so bought into the narrative. That's right. Yep, no doubt about it. I can't add anything to that. Um, so part six, in the presence of my enemy. So, so this starts off with me talking about George H.W. Bush and his tenure at the CIA. What most people don't realize is that George Bush was a replacement for a gentleman by the name of William E. Colby, who was fired from the CIA. And this is all documented. Um, but the main reason for his firing is he was er airing way too much dirty laundry. And I quote when I say, uh, the reason he needs to go is he talks too much. That were the main reasons for his firing. So they replaced him with a yes guy in George H.W. Bush, which most of us know is about as deep of a deep stater as you can get. Can I stop you there for a second? Because you just described George H.W. Bush as a yes man. And I don't think of him as a yes man. I think of him as um, fully Operative? complicit as an operator. Yeah. Yeah. A yes man in. You, you will 
you will perform the operations that the CIA is asking you to do. Colby but, wasn't willing to do that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is why he was shown the door. <clears throat> so, so I look at this from the perspective of how things are being framed up within the Patriot movement and Greg Phillips of OPSEC and with True the Vote Association is it is really kind of spearheading some of the movement around how we need to look at things from a military operational, a military intelligence. Let me reword that a third time from an intelligence perspective, an information intelligence perspective. And he has a very popular saying that he uses all the time. He's used it in all sorts of different variations, which is everything is an info op. And so I address this issue, this article, from the perspective of if everything is an info op, then what in the world is true? If everything we're hearing about is designed to distract us and just to to disseminate propaganda, um, to give us a competitive advantage over our opponent, then what actually is true? Are the things that we're not hearing the truth we need to be seeking? And so that's what I did here in bringing Oracle and Larry Ellison center stage. So the way I did that, let me, let me stop you for a minute. Okay. So let's talk about info ops for a second. Now, do you, see a distinction between an information operation and a psychological operation. Oh gosh, yes. Okay. So oh, yeah. Yeah, give me that. So a psychological operation is in my mind designed to twist the way you think about things. And mm -hmm. the way that you operate and react as a result of incoming information. So it's it is made it's, it is designed to play mind games. Ultimately designed to um, create create a certain behavioral response and and or complicity with a certain mental or emotional state that can then be manipulated for a higher purpose by those running the psychological operation. That's right. Versus okay. an info op, which is, you know, I don't want to undersell it, but it, it's basically just redirection. Mm -hmm. You know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain type of operations, as opposed to psychological ones, which are more um, competitive from the perspective of they're actually trying to get you to think differently than how you're currently thinking. So have you heard Greg talk about and define this? To some extent, I mean, I I'm sure that I have in the course of the last few months that I have, you know, paid pretty significant attention to Greg Phillips. But, you know, it also occurs to me that if everything is an info op, then, you know, you could take that really straightforwardly. And the dissemination of true information effectively is also an information operation. Yeah, and I outlined that in the issue, which is, okay. you know, I actually asked the questions literally, was COVID-19 an information op? Was the cyber symposium an information op? Was the pit an information op? Is this conversation an info op? Right, that's right. And and they're kind of, on one hand, they're nonsensical questions, but if you if you distrust everything 
to the point where you're only willing to accept truth that is not widely disseminated, I think there are some advantages to that. Couldn't you also, you know, take all of those issues separately, those different situations and events? And, you know, the way I look at it is if everything is an info op, then let's examine a given situation and how that particular situation is itself an info op, right? So you can say, you could talk about the cyber symposium at any length and then ask yourself what aspects of the cyber symposium are an information op and how does that information op work? What was the purpose of the information op and what was the eventual outcome? Yeah. And an information op to your, to kind of dovetail into your point has mul- can have multiple audiences, right? So right. the information be disseminated is, uh, meant to be received very differently from an audience in the room at the pit uh, versus somebody uh, in the military in China. Yes. And this (laughs) dovetails with how we were just referring to Donald Trump and how he is orchestrating, you know, let's call it a vibe at uh, Mar-a-Lago. He is viewing that situation from a number of different perspectives. Someone who might be there as a business associate from New York is going to have a different perspective on the event um, than Xi Jinping when he arrives. And they'll all have a different perspective on the event than a young couple who is just visiting the resort to play golf for the weekend. Right. And he has to make the environment appropriate for all of them from each and every one of those perspectives. Right. 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 Okay. So, so I kind of kick into this issue with um, talking about the second interview that Patel Patriot had with Greg. So it was post, this is 10x bigger than mules, but before the pit. Mm-hmm. So in this interview, so I gave Patel several questions to ask Greg. One of those questions was, what is your association or true the votes association with Oracle and Larry Ellison? In which case he completely did not answer the question. Um, so I asked him to ask this question already knowing that Larry had participated on a private phone call that true the vote was on related to the overturning of the election. Mm-hmm. And he still answered His answer was something along the lines of, I don't really know Catherine's donor. She doesn't reveal those. Um, I don't know about Larry uh, specifically. And it was just kind of a non-answer. And then Patel moved on. So that told me he did not want to talk about that topic at all, even though I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's an association there. Mm -hmm. So. And is this, but is this association particularly with Catherine. I mean, Catherine and Greg are seen as um, inseparable in some way, but the truth is that Greg Phillips is not actually part of True the Vote. Isn't that yeah. right? Okay. Well, Patel's question, though, was to him directly. Right. Are you working with Oracle and what you're doing? What's your association with Oracle? What about Larry? And then he immediately turned it to, well, Catherine doesn't reveal her her donors. I, he wasn't asking about Catherine. So uh, um, so that was that was telling because Greg's 
pretty good about answering questions. And so this isn't a, a knock on Greg. He was doing sure, what of he course. should have done. Absolutely. Right. What he should have done at that moment. So then I move on to um, talking more about Larry Ellison, um, the individual. And I, and I call out this Washington examiner, examiner article where they talk about the call. So on this call, you had True the Votes lawyer, James Bopp. You had Larry Ellison, you had Sean Hannity, you had Jay Sekulow, and Lindsey Graham were all on this call. So, such an odd, uh, such it an is, odd yeah, group of people. Yeah, that's right. And so, and the only reason this came out is because of legal discovery that was happening as a result of a case that True the Vote was re- involved in. Otherwise, nobody knows anything about this. So through legal discovery, it was revealed this call took place and the nature of the call, which was. Can, can I stop you and ask, um, do you know offhand the date of the call? And then do you know when the Washington Examiner article came out? Were these one right after? It, it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, the Washington yeah. Examiner wrote on what came out during the litigation. And I would imagine that that would have happened weeks or at least weeks, but probably months later. So the call took place on the 22nd of November. Okay. But it wasn't revealed until May of 2020. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, okay. So in 2014, so we're, we're, we're going back in time now. In 2014, Larry Ellison, which this is kind of almost never happens, steps down as the CEO of Oracle. So Larry Ellison was the founder of of Oracle and the CEO of Oracle. And then in 2014, he steps down from CEO to become the chief technology officer. Now, just some background on Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison is one of the richest men in the country, and Oracle is a massive uh, database technology firm. Yeah. Okay. So just for your audience's purposes, right. Oracle is the creme de la creme of database companies. It is the biggest in the world by far. There's not even a close second. Silicon Valley giant. Right. Exactly. Oracle Arena, where the Golden State Warriors play. It's that's, that Oracle. That's right. Um, so, so Larry steps down, becomes CTO, which was in and of itself was kind of strange. Stepped down as CEO. He was 75 at the time, becomes CTO of the company in 2014. So that article came out from Vox. And then literally the next day, Gizmodo article comes out, which says the following. (laughs) So let me, this is very much worth quoting. Okay. So I told you about the Vox article, which just gave you general information about Larry stepping down, becoming CTO. Gizmodo comes out with an article the next day on the 19th of September, 2014. It says, hey, yesterday, Vox somehow managed to write an entire article about the history of Oracle and its founder, Larry Ellison, without mentioning the CIA even once, which is pretty astounding given the fact that Oracle takes its name from the 1977 CIA project codename Project Oracle, and that the CIA was Oracle's first customer. So getting back to 
kind you of can't imagine it, an outlet like Vox missing something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have Vox saying Larry steps down. Then the next day you have Gizmodo saying, wait a minute. Yeah. Larry stepped down, but you realize that <laughs> Oracle is a CIA, a company created by the CIA, literally mm-hmm. created by the CIA. There's the documents to support it. It was called project Oracle. So, and then Larry worked for the company that designed the database called Project Oracle. So he leaves that company and two years later founds the company called Oracle and kind of the rest is history. Um, but the big reveal in that article is that Oracle is a CIA company and very, very few companies people know about that not just a company that has influence from the cia or has people that work for it from the cia it was a company that was founded by the caa cia and started have you done um much of the same background exploring the other major tech firms because i i would love to spend a couple of minutes on that if you have but if you haven't it's all good but you know there's a lot of conversation about how you know Facebook actually started as a DARPA program called LifeLog. There are clear relationships between DARPA and Twitter or CIA and Twitter. All of these big tech firms have former intel, uh, former intelligence and former law enforcement officials um, currently staffed at the companies, currently playing major roles in the companies in terms of how they censor the American public or use uh, user data. All of these seem like giant government programs that operate under the guise of being private companies so that the people whose data is being extracted, the people whose behavior and emotions are being manipulated and influenced by these companies are none the wiser to what they're doing. It's actually too hard for the normie brain to understand that these are intel and law enforcement organizations extracting their data and then influencing their behavior. People don't want to imagine that that's true, despite how much it's proven to them. It is true. You actually make a good point because it's not Oracle's not the only company playing this game. It is the only company, to my knowledge, that was actually created from a project that bears its name. Yeah, and, and specifically by the CIA and not DARPA or one of the other organizations. Right, that's right. That's right. right. So, <clears throat> so then moving on, we have Oracle, which is a CIA-created cr- company. So, so, so take that for what it is, which is in and of itself a huge reveal. So I want to real quick read from the the main requirement of this project called Oracle Mass Storage System, which is the CIA project on which And what's the, the date on this? It is thirty first of July, nineteen seventy four. Nineteen seventy four. This is nearly fifty years ago. And this project was the project, and the reason why Colby is important was approved by William Colby, which was then fired and replaced by George H.W. Bush. So the main requirement on this project, the mass storage system is needed for rapid storage and analysis of vast amounts of foreign intelligence concerned with various sensitive operations and missions of the CIA. And of course, it's noted in this that it's 
foreign intelligence because the CIA is not allowed to gather that type of intelligence on American systems or uh, citizens. So it's always foreign. Everything the CIA does is always uh, oh, foreign oh, yeah. and they never do anything here. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's not. It's not us. It's not us. It's, right. it's always the guys on the outside. So, OK, so that's the kind of the Oracle background and kind of the, the Larry background in terms of his associations with Trump. So what people don't understand about Larry Ellison and Saffir Katz, who is the current CEO of Oracle, is they're huge Donald Trump fans, major donators. Larry hosted um, a Donald Trump fundraiser for the 2020 election um, at his resort. Um, I mean, th th this is very, very public information. They've hired multiple people from the Trump administration, one of which, is Ezra Cohen Watnick. So, so Larry steps down as CEO, steps down into a CTO position so he can have more control over the day-to-day -day operations of the technology. That's 2014. 2015, Donald Trump comes down the escalator. He becomes president. 2017, Ezra Cohen Watnick is fired um, from the um, uh, what's the name of the organization? The uh, NS or not the NSA? The uh, uh, NSC. He's fired from the NSC, and then two weeks later, he lands a job at Oracle at their operations in Washington D.C. And his title again, we're talking about a 34-year-old man at the time. His title is Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives in the private sector. Ezra Cohen-Watnick was a Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives at Oracle Corporation, where he advised the Chief Executive Officer on national security issues. This is 20, two weeks after getting fired. 2017. Right. Gotcha. A, a month later, we get our first Q drop. October, whatever it is, 28th, I believe, yeah. 2017. So there's a lot of people out there that thinks Ezra is behind Q. That may or may not be true. I think it's an interesting, potentially very important side note. There's no way to, um, to disprove that. Like you can't disqualify that as a, as an answer or partial answer. Would that uh, no, be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. Uh, what's significant in and of itself, though, is the fact that he went to work for Oracle under that title, um, immediately getting fired. And this is, of course, after the Flynn stuff. Um, and then you got Keith Kellogg, who also worked at Oracle, who was in the Trump administration. Can I pause you for one second? Yeah. So in terms of the technology, I don't want to go too deep into how the the boards work, the Chans and Aitkun, but there is a lot of back-end stuff that matters a great deal in being able to actually just have the reality of those Q-drops appearing. Now, the media attacked the Chans relentlessly for years they were hotbeds of racism and violent extremism, and they wanted to get these taken offline, but it never happened. They wanted to eliminate Q, and it never happened. Is there a connection in terms of the back end 
what would they what would have been required and is there a connection between what you're discussing right now potentially with Oracle and the fortification of the technology on the Chans and on Acoon? Oh, it could very easily be every one of those uh, every one of those platforms are operating with some sort of relational database. They can't okay. do it without. So okay. um, and you can't get bigger than Oracle when it comes to masterminds behind those types of technologies. But um, if you wanted to make sure that one was totally fortified to the point where it couldn't be taken down. Oh, Oracle's Oracle's your company. This, this sort of access might be key and something like that. Yeah, they're 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 pretty much untouchable even from foreign actors. So you have someone go from the National Security Council to become senior director for strategic initiatives at Oracle, which is the biggest and best of the technology companies that might be able to see a project like that through. And this is For pure sure. speculation. I'm not implying that I know there's a connection or even hinting that you are about to say that. I'm just asking <laughs> about the possibility of it. Yeah, yeah, that possibility. Okay. Just to be clear. Definitely there. So so Ezra's fired August 2nd, 2017. He's hired by Oracle on September 12th, and then you got the first Q job. And then this is where we're getting into kind of the meat of this issue. So what people had been wanting which I decided to do in this issue is just lay it out. And we don't have to go through every step in here. Lay it out. What transpired technologically on November 3rd that can assure us that they have this under control. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what I did is I said, the president put the key people in place that he needed to to run this military operation. So it was important that Michael Flynn get fired when he got fired, right around the same time as Ezra. It was important that at your corporate asset, which is Oracle. Well, can I can I back you up to the Michael Flynn step uh, step for a second? Because so Michael Flynn left as Donald Trump's national security advisor in, I believe, January of 2017, right? Yeah, I mean, not, not. So we're talking about a six month difference, right? Yeah, I just want to yeah. be, I just want to be clear for anyone who's listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, okay. I, I would say the, the, the time frame is significant, but it wasn't like years later or years before. So, sure. uh, yeah. So, so Flynn is, is now operating this from a, uh, execution perspective. Because you now have him. When you say operating this, operating what? Because in the public understanding, Michael Flynn uh, lied to Vice President Pence. He was let go from the Trump administration in January 2017 and then dealt with legal fallout from this entire situation up until he was finally pardoned by Donald Trump, if I have that right, right? Uh, that's right. Okay. Yep. Which is to, to, me, a, to me a completely different but parallel tracked what he was also doing. Okay. Right. So then you so, believe that Michael Flynn was involved in the Q operation. Is that what you're hinting at or I'm hinting at he is involved in the operation. I'm getting, just getting ready to describe. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Right? So in this operation, uh, you, you first have to put your assets in place. Asset number mm -hmm. one is making sure Michael Flynn is freed up from the government to be able to participate in this. Number two, you get your brainchild from an architecture perspective in place, which is Ezra. So in order to do that, 
he had to go. And nobody would, could possibly argue that he wasn't fired for anything other than flimsy reasons. He was just fired because H.R. McMaster wanted him gone. Got it. Right. So he's setting an oracle a month later. So you now have your general and you now have your architect, technological architect, setting at your corporate asset, which is one of the biggest um, architectural and database and technology companies in the world. And then you move into the executive order phase, which he pumped out multiple types of executive orders uh, related to, you know, uh, both corporate as financial support for, you know, uh, COVID victims to, you know, you know, fortifying the um, renewing the election fortification for one three eight four eight. I mean, there was a whole host of executive orders that Donald Trump was pumping out towards the end of his presidency, and really even in uh, the latter parts of 2019, which were key to this operation. So that was the next step in making sure that all those executive orders were in place. And for the listeners, Executive Order 13848 is imposing certain sanctions on foreign interference in American elections. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, let me make sure so I get this right. So let's let me step through them here. Okay, so step number one, he rebrands, he brands MAGA back in 2012. Mm-hmm. And you could argue does the same for True Social. Number two, and this is what we were just talking about a second ago, he's, he's positioning key corporate assets to leverage influence and capabilities related to technology and central intelligence. So you've got Larry Ellison, and you've got Ezra both setting at at Oracle. He announces his candidacy for presidency in June of 2015. He becomes president. He secures the corporate asset CEO as part of his transition team. So the CEO of Oracle, Stafford Katz, was part of his transition team. Number six, he positions the key intelligence asset. And now this is what we're talking about, Ezra, so we won't repeat that. Number seven, he initiates the appropriate executive orders to allow for continuity of government cover for the forthcoming operation. So this is where I differ a little bit uh, with kind of the devolution theory. The devolution theory is more of continuity of government was the driver. Mm -hmm. I'm more of continuity of government was the cover for what was actually happening. And people would argue that continuity of government has been in place for quite a long time and that this was not Trump initiated and is not the governing factor in what's happening right now. Yeah. Isn't that the competing theory? Right. There is, okay. That is the competing theory for sure. Yep. Um, and definitely a lot of evidence to support that. So, sure. so yeah. So, uh, step eight, monitor the 2018 election and validate the technological design will work. In other words, or, or, or Ezra's validating this design, working with all sorts of architects and engineers to make sure that um, their ability to prevent a future steal is possible. But right. in order to do that, they needed to allow 2018 to transpire. Yes. And to monitor the whole thing. So. So just to like set the stage a little bit to reset the stage, maybe in 2012, Donald Trump was tweeting about how there was election fraud in the Obama Romney election. 
2016, Donald Trump wins. Hillary Clinton fails to concede on the night of the election, doesn't concede until the next day. Donald Trump begins tweeting about how he would have won the popular vote, too, if not for millions of illegal votes. People think he's crazy. He knows he's not. Greg Phillips backs that up, but won't provide the evidence to CNN because truthfully, CNN does not deserve the evidence and something much bigger is happening. In 2018, he puts in 2017 and 2018, he puts the pieces in place to be able to monitor the 2018 midterm elections. And people will remember those midterms because Stacey Abrams was supposed to be the new Democrat savior becoming governor in Georgia. Stacey Abrams is a key figure in the Democrat Communist Party's election fraud apparatus as they have constructed it in the United States. She's a key operator in Georgia. She was key even in the 2020 election in how she got Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp to sign on to her consent decree, which allowed the election fraud apparatus the power to do what it did in Georgia. Right. And so now we're up to the point where they are ready to monitor the 2018 election results and know if their system is in place and if it's effective in being able to carry out that part of what we understand now to be a sting operation to monitor American elections and restore one person, one vote in American elections. Am I on the right track? Yeah, for sure. All right, great. So then our next step is to complete a test cycle. So we're, we're, we're now past to that 2018. We're completing a test cycle during the 2020 primary elections. Okay. So March through July 2020 was the range for those elections. Can I stop you right there then? So why do you say March through July? Because we have the end of the primary cycle actually coming up on Tuesday, September 13th. Do you believe I'm that about they- the dem- I'm talking about the Democratic primary. The Democrat primary is where they did a test cycle. It didn't matter if it was Republican or Democrat. It was okay. a test cycle no matter what. So, the, okay. And are, so when you say test cycle, are we talking about 2018 right now? Or are no. we talking about the 2020 primaries that are set to complete four days from now? Uh, you mean the 2022 primaries? 20, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So you're talking about the 20. Reset my mind. Yes. Okay. For some so, reason, I was off by two years on everything I just said. <laughs> okay. So we're, so we're 2018. Now we're 2020 and okay. we have the Democrat primaries, which run from March through gotcha. July of 2020. And our test candidates for gotcha. this test cycle are Biden, Sanders, Warren, Bloomberg, Buttigieg. Okay. So that's our test candidates for testing this technological solution to save future elections. So we, so they're obviously overseeing uh, the Biden uh, victory in the primaries. Fast forward a few months to November 3rd through the 6th, and they complete the project execution during the 2020 general election. And what I mean by that is everything that could be captured, both from a network perspective and a database perspective, was completely overwhelming to their abilities in terms of no uh, in terms of the Trump team knowing what they were doing and able to capture it in real time so everything that happened from November 3rd 
through November 6th from a network perspective, from a server perspective, and from a database perspective was completely captured nationwide because you have a nationwide infrastructure in place because of your corp- the corporate asset, which is Oracle. Mm-hmm. So everything was captured. Step number 12, complete project execution during the 2021 special Senate election. So on the 5th of January, 2021, you had the Warnock Ossoff victories um, over whoever it was, Purdue and what's her name? Um, Kelly Leffler. Kelly Leffler, yeah. So you complete the the election cycle by overseeing um, those two rigged elections as well. Step number 13 is you perform global backups of all of this data. Meaning this isn't something that where we just have one copy of it. And then 14, which is key to all of this, is you disable the software required to continue to support electronic manipulation of voting. Okay, so, you know, that last part strikes me as as a bit odd. Are you saying that they have lost the ability to manipulate election outcomes at the machine level at this point? Uh, because uh, I would I would argue not that at the machine seen, level, not at the machine level. Okay, because no. I would argue That's, that we've seen um, significant election manipulation throughout the primaries in 2022. Yes, okay. I, I would definitely I would definitely agree with that completely. Would okay. you agree? that we've seen a lot more winning in the primaries? Well, no, not automatically, because, you know, if these things can be stopped and started, then they're doing the stopping and starting intentionally. You know, I don't think that the results we see in a place like Georgia in the primary, um, make sense on a number of different levels. Yes, I believe on some level it might be possible for us to overwhelm the polls. And I hope that's true. And I encourage everybody to go vote. But, you know, a lot of people claimed that the Glenn Youngkin result came from overwhelming the polls in the fall of 2021. And I don't believe that at all. A couple of days before the Glenn Youngkin election, I speculated on my podcast that the best possible outcome for that election from the perspective of the global communists and of the maintenance of that election fraud apparatus that allows them to maintain power at the expense of the American people would be a Glenn Youngkin close win that would show some sort of red wave effect and that it would also convince Republicans who believe that the 2020 elections were stolen and not just Donald Trump all the way up and down the ballot. It would convince those people that election fraud actually doesn't happen because if election fraud happened to benefit the Democratic Party, then why wouldn't they have used it in the Virginia governor's race? You know, it was basically proof on some level that not only was there some swing back toward Republicans, but not a huge one. It's one that we could deal with. It's one that we can understand on some level, right? Like people got mad about critical race theory and the gender agenda being pushed in schools. Maybe people were a little unhappy with the early 
uh, part of the Biden administration. And so they voted for Republicans because they wanted some kind of change. They weren't excited by Terry McAuliffe. And nonetheless, Glenn Youngkin won by a slim margin, two points. And that disproves the idea of election fraud completely, even though we watched them steal the, the election in New Jersey on the same night. So, you know, to me, the manipulation is not necessarily always to put a Democrat in office. It's to achieve certain outcomes that work politically and work with the public facing narrative. Yeah. So the, the type of manipulation that you're talking about has little to nothing to do with the solution. Got it. That's fine. I'm talking about here, which is more um, dealing with what we call an exploit application, mm -hmm. which allows you to change votes electronically independent of mules, independent of Dominion machines, right? And so um, that's what I'm talking about that they're stopping because okay. there's a whole level of manipulation happening that's independent of either of those other two scenarios. That's how Joe Biden gets to 81 million is through an exploit application, right? which allows for the changing of, of votes electronically. Once you stop that, then you get rid of the lion's share of the fraud. Okay. So is the idea here that they, that there are, and I, would speculate that maybe there are 20 or 30 or 50 different ways that they are able to manipulate the the vote count and the results. Are you suggesting then that this operation is about cutting out this one particular aspect? And then once this particular aspect is cut, it actually does become possible to overwhelm the polls and override the other aspects of fraud that they're completing? Bingo. Right. Okay. Because, because what I argue in this article is intensely I argue it, which is we need to stop this narrative of overwhelming the vote because you could line up every human being alive, mm -hmm. go have them vote, and it's incapable of beating software. Right. Well, yes, in a sense, yes, I agree. I agree, obviously, on a technical level. There is some point at which the results that are necessary once the polls have been overwhelmed reach a point where they where they just cannot be believed by anybody. And we should have reached that point in 2020. The idea that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes is preposterous. And you don't even need to be a smart person to figure that out. You know. Right. If Donald Trump got 75 million and the likelihood is he got far more than that, but if he got 75 million in a normal election, the total vote is around 130 million. I think it was 131 in 2016 and the cycles prior were within three or four or five million of that. There's no way to go up 27 million, a full 20% in one election cycle, especially not for a candidate who didn't leave his basement. And when he did leave his basement, saw rallies that gathered tens of people. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so let me try to kind of round out this explanation by kind of reading this verbatim because okay. I think it's important. So 
when I'm rounding out this issue, here's what I'm saying. I said, it's funny how the old guard gets replaced by the new guard, even within the Patriot movement. Why is it that individuals like Sidney Powell, Mary Fanning, Kurt Wiebe, Thomas McInerney, and Dennis Montgomery were so easily pushed to the side? Is it because we didn't see the Kraken get released? Luckily, Mike Lindell has brought Dennis back into the picture because Dennis understands how this likely happened because he lived on both sides of the train tracks. A true whistleblower, not not the least, not the latest dimwit trying to obstruct a SCOTUS nomination, but rather someone that has risked his life to come forward. We have allowed so much of our focus to turn to Dominion, Smartmatic, ESNS, and now Conic that we've turned away from one of the few theories even remotely capable of getting Joe Biden to 81 million votes, which is an exploit application. In this case, it appears, in my opinion, to have been Obama's former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, and his director of the CIA, John Brennan. What has happened in so many elections since 2019, when the Obama administration first commandeered, 2009, when first Obama administration first commandeered a supercomputer to be used in conjunction with the transfer point software designed to tamper with the computers at the transfer point of state election computer systems and outside third-party election data vaults as votes are being transferred. That's why Donald Trump speaks as if he, as if it already took place because he's seen the solution, technology capabilities too unconventional to be called conventional, to quote Ezra, capable of capturing every single byte of conceivable data before it ever even reaches its destination. We've made it impossible for them to win by basically destroying the exploit application because that's how they that's how they run these totals up. And so do you have an idea about this exploit application? What is it? What's it called? Who designed it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know that. Well, this was originally designed by Dennis. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to. Yeah, I, I right. was going to so, let you do it. Yeah, hammer and scorecard. So I mean, who who knows better than than him in terms of you know how you would take this to the next to the next evolution? Because not only do you need to be able to disable the software they might be using to exploit data, you may have to exploit it yourself, right? So. Yeah, Dennis Montgomery is a bit of a controversial figure, not for you or I, but for a lot of people, even people in our community, um, he has been often derided. He has been relentlessly attacked by people. And one thing I have noticed in those attacks is that they are always ad hominem attacks. And now some of them might be based on real situations, right? I don't know. Dennis personally, and I am not able to vouch for the uh, truth or falsity of the claims made about him. But one thing I do know is that all of the takedown claims, the reason that we shouldn't believe Dennis is not because it's impossible that Dennis did the thing that people are claiming Dennis did. It's that Dennis is an untrustworthy person. And so it is just right off the bat, an ad hominem and a misdirection. If you want to say that there's no way Dennis Montgomery could have used hammer and scorecard 
to do what it is claimed he has done, then you should be able to disprove that particular claim, not tell me that Dennis has 10-year-old gambling debts or that someone at the CIA was mad at him in an article in the New York Times from 2005. If you want to discredit Dennis, that is exactly how you would go about doing it. You would attack his character, right? And ignore the substance, which again is exactly what they do to what they call QAnon, right? It's always about what uh, what the conspiracy theory is. It's not about, hey, look at the post and tell me what the content of the post is about. They don't argue against the content of the posts. They don't argue about the information phenomenon. They say QAnon is dangerous. You know, by the same token, Dennis Montgomery can't be trusted. Therefore, none of this could have happened. Yep. That's that makes no sense at all. Yeah. And yeah, they do the same it, thing, by the way, to uh, to Tori Maras and to Lynn Wood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we don't have to get into that, but <laughs> yeah, that's and it's always the out. same people doing it, oddly enough. It, it is. It is the same. People. Yeah. They have something to hide. So but regardless of how one feels about Dennis Montgomery, from a technological perspective, you're not getting to 81 million without an exploit application. It's just not going to happen. I don't care how many mules you get. So. You know, th that's that's why I came to this conclusion. So. So, yeah, that's kind of the summary, if you could summarize something in two and a half hours. but <laughs> No, I think you've done great. And so but let's tie let's tie a big bow on this thing. Right. So Donald Trump gets into office already knowing or believing that there is a pretty profound problem with our elections in the United States of America. In fact, he was asked multiple times in debates and elsewhere leading up to the 2016 election, whether or not he would accept the results as they were given. And he would never say that he would. He said, well, maybe I will if I win, if I win. right, because right. he knew what was happening in the country and he knew about the scale of potential election fraud. And his mind did not change on any of that the entire time. Now, with the size of this plan and with the number of parts of this plan, if one is to believe that this plan is real and is implemented and is happening and has happened, wouldn't it require some of this taking place before Donald Trump ever announced he was running? Or could Donald Trump just have been a vessel for this larger operation? Well, the thing about it is, is irregardless of Donald Trump's timing and whether it's a company like Oracle or a company where he has relationships with other than Oracle, these infrastructures are already in place, right? There's no setup time required. Now, the setup time required is the time from when he put Ezra in there mm -hmm. in 2017, leading up to the 2020 election. Was there activities happening before that? Probably. I mean, I'm sure yeah. there's all sorts of activities. I mean, I guess the question would be, how did he manage this from a perspective of combating the deep state and the intelligence community? How was he able to actually do this especially without them 
I guess, making a bigger fuss about this in a public setting. And I suppose you could argue that they did exactly that and that all of the extraneous stuff like the Russian collusion and the Mueller investigation and the uh, multiple impeachments, that all of that was designed to prevent all of this. But how do you view how do you view that? Well, in terms of was Donald Trump recruited, maybe I'll just ask it straightforward. Was Donald Trump recruited to run for president? Do you handle any of that in this? And is it necessary that he was to be able to effectuate all of this? Uh, I don't think he was recruited. I think he always okay. intended to run. Okay. Um, he was self-recruited, <laughs> um, but I, I don't. I always thought he he intended to run. Um, but he's always known about the fraud. Mm-hmm. So the ch- framing up the solution happened many many years ago. But framing up the technological solution was a lot more recent, right? And having worked in the in the technology industry for many years, I know that sometimes you don't even come to the true solution on what you're going to execute on. Sometimes even till the eleventh hour, because the technology affords you so much flexibility and being being able to implement things on such short notice now, uh, which is what you couldn't do 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, that you can wait till the eleventh hour and kind of pick your option. Well, and also kind of as as the experience develops and you become more familiar with exactly what it is you've built, new applications for the technology might arise, right? Um, yes, um, you're always dealing with what you're currently running, becoming obsolete or because of an upgrade or whatever. Um, but the chances are they probably decided on something relatively early on in the 2017, 2018 range and kind of stuck with that framework, um, because it is such a big operation. And so would you say that as a result of your, your research, you believe that it is basically done and dusted. They have not only conducted a sting operation on these past two major national election cycles and some of the special elections and potentially maybe even primaries, but that they now have the technology in place that they can thwart the electronic manipulation effort from the other side. Yeah, they're not only getting ready to take over the narrative, which they've kind of already taken over. Uh, they're getting ready to take over the technology. And so you think that we will have, apart from the other methods of uh, election manipulation, this part of it is going to be handled for the 2022 midterm? Oh, I firmly believe that. That's yeah, very the, interesting. The other parts are being handled at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and, really not a part he can control. He can only right, can of, control this part of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess depending on your view of his current influence, I suppose. Um, and do you believe, would you then say that the attempt to pass H.R. 1 and federalize elections that was taken up right at the beginning of the fake administration, that would be done to counteract what they must know is coming on oh, for sure. from a technological Oh, aspect. for sure. Absolutely. No doubt about it. 
So you would say that all of this is reason for people to take heart in our elections being, if not completely fixed by this midterm, at least fixed to the point where we can achieve a mostly positive outcome. Yeah, I mean, either we caught them all as true or it's a lie. Well, we may well have caught them all, but not finished the job entirely. Sure. Right? Well, they may, yeah, and they may not even know they've been caught until 2024. Gosh, don't you think that that's kind of hard to believe, though? Like, they must know they're screwed. Uh, yeah, the, the, the reveal about how much they've been caught on may not be known until 2024, but yeah, the writing's on the wall. Yeah, they, right. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually have a pet theory about this stuff, and that's that they are able to um, manipulate what is happening on the other end to the extent, like, if we imagine, right, there are something like 3,000 counties in the country, I think it's like around 3,100, and far more precincts than that. If we can imagine that this technology can be, I think you might've just lost your sound. Did you just hit mute? Your Bluetooth might've disconnected again. No, I'm back. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Um, if we're to imagine that this technology is in place, can we imagine that they might be able to target it specifically in different areas? Because oh, sure. one of the things that I observe happening often with the fake administration in place is that they on in some real sense don't understand what's going on all the time. Like they are trying to do certain things and finding that it didn't work or they do something that they thought was going to be thwarted in some way and they overshoot by a lot, yeah. which is what I think might explain some of the results that we saw in the Georgia primary. And I do wonder if maybe they are allowing it to work in certain places and not work in other places so that no matter what result the Democrats try to achieve in their election manipulations, it is going to appear obviously wrong. Right. So I guess, yeah, some of that remains to be seen. I yeah. wonder if they are if they are trapping them in a multitude of ways right now and just leaving the enemy totally unbalanced and unprepared for whatever might come next. Yeah. And another thing, even within the circle of the people that are involved in this, there's an unknowingness. So let me give you an example, which I think is might be one of the biggest reveals of the entire series, which is when it was found out about this phone call, James Bopp, who is the attorney for True the Vote, pulled Lindsey Graham aside and asked, or Lindsey Graham's spokesperson aside, and asked him, why is Larry Ellison on this call with us? Is he part of the data solution? Hmm. Very interesting, yeah. Part of the data solution. All right, Richard. Well, we have uh, set some kind of record here. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap this up. For everyone out there, you can go to richardthesaint.substack.com. I have that right? Yep. And read through the Flight 1745 series. All of what we just talked about is laid out in much more explicit detail there. 
And if there's any other way you would like for people to follow you, you're on Truth Social, of course. Yep, on Telegram. Yep. Okay, and it's Richard the Saint on yep. both of those, right? Same no matter what. Yep. All right, brother. Well, it's been great talking to you. I hope we um were able to uh, reach some sort of clarity on on all of this for people. It is a massive, massive topic that probably takes much longer than two and a half hours to understand, but I hope we did it justice. Well, I've, I've appreciated the time you've allowed me to spend on your show, man. Thanks for, thanks for taking it. Yeah, of course. We'll talk soon. Okay. See ya. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app, and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, 
and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!